morning. Welcome to Campus House. My name is Rick. I'm one of the pastors here. And we're going to continue on in this little mini-series we're doing. About, since you won't be with us at Christmas, we're doing a Christmas series a little earlier, before Christmas. And this is our uh, second to last Sunday before everything's over. Everyone's gone. And we're doing this Christmas series called Jesus Revealed. And what we're doing in the series is looking at the stories surrounding the birth of Jesus. You know, and these stories are revisited every single year at Christmas time by millions of people around the world. Because the incarnation, Jesus' birth, is one of the greatest events in the history of the world. And if all the evidence we have from Scripture and other things is true... It means that the birth of Jesus is God himself showing up in human form in order to reveal who he is and to meet us where we are. That's the claim of Christmas, that God, who is not one of us, showed up in the form of one of us and said, we needed that most of all. This is the Christmas story that Jesus is revealed, God reveals himself by taking on flesh in Jesus Christ. And he is doing this because he says this is the ultimate proof that God knows what's wrong with the world and he wants to set things right. However, the strange thing about these Christmas stories is that they're all upside down and backwards. Because in these stories... It's all the, the wrong people who end up rejoicing in God and all the right people, all the people who have their lives sorted out who are far away. And so the Christmas stories always evoke this question. They're designed this way as we look at them and try to understand why they're there and what they're about. They're always evoking this question, how, how do I respond to how God reveals himself? Because the Christmas stories show us a bunch of people who are responding in one way or another to this life of God showing up in flesh in Jesus. So let me pray for us again, and we'll, we'll open up a passage that tells one of the stories of Jesus' birth, or the story surrounding Jesus' birth in Matthew chapter 2. Let me pray. Father, thank you for giving us your word and that uh, we look to these original source documents that have been collected throughout history telling of who you are telling why you're here, why you do what you do, and how we can respond. We pray, Lord, that you would help us to understand and to see what it is you're doing, why these stories are here, and help us to know you. And I pray this in your name. Amen. So the story we're looking at this morning is Matthew chapter 2. Uh, it's pretty famous story of the wise men. So if you uh, have a Bible and you want to turn there or there's Bibles on the floor around you, there will also be some verses on the screen. Matthew is the first book of the New Testament, uh, and we're going to read Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 to 12. It says this, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, Behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, 
and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And they told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you found him, bring me word so that I too may come and worship. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother. They fell down and worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod... They departed to their own country by another way. Many of you probably don't have a nativity scene set up in your dorm or your apartment. Some of you probably don't even know what the word nativity means. Uh, it's those old wooden, like, they're characters of carved, or you can go buy them at stores, and they're characters of Jesus in the manger. It's Mary and Joseph, his parents. Uh, there's usually some cows and some donkeys and some sheep. Uh, there's shepherds there because all this stuff comes out of the stories from Christmas time. And so we have these depictions of them. And sometimes uh, churches will actually do live nativity scenes where, like, around Christmas time, people will dress up as these various characters and stand out in the cold and represent the story. And so if you, uh, if you do know what a nativity scene is, it's just the scene of Jesus' birth. But if we're going to understand this story a little better and try to make sense of it, uh, we're going to have to debunk parts of the nativity scene because some of it's just wrong. So here's the thing. As I was getting ready to do this this week, several people asked me, oh, what are you teaching on this Sunday? And so I told them the story of the wise man in Matthew 2, and many of them had heard this story, and they, multiple people almost word for word said the same thing. They said, well, I've always wondered, what is that even there for? What is this weird story about wise men traveling? And we have this song, you know, We Three Kings of Orient Are that we sing about them. And what is that all about? Well, this nativity scene, this depiction of Jesus' birth, usually has the wise men there too. But in reality, they definitely weren't there. They wouldn't have been there. This story happens two years after Jesus is born. And he would have been a toddler. It says his parents lived in a house at this time. They'd, uh, they'd, they'd uh, decided to move into the neighborhood. They put down a mortgage. They were settling in. And so they were in their house. Jesus was a toddler at this point. He was not, at the ma- he was not in a manger anymore. He's not a baby when these guys would have showed up. And so the nativity scene gets that a little bit wrong. And there's uh, these... Wise men who come when they're two years, when Jesus is about two. And it says in the song, right, we three kings of Orient are. First of all, they're not kings, they're wise men. And secondly, there's not three. It doesn't say that there's three. It does say that there's three gifts. They give three gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh, really costly gifts. So they were probably wealthy. Uh, they may have even had backing from a king 
financially, but they were not kings, and there weren't three. There's probably more than that, that actually. Uh, but we just get three because people say, well, each one gave a gift. But I gave my mom three gifts last Christmas, and she doesn't think there's three of me. So I'm not sure that that holds. So we, so we have this nativity scene, but the wise men aren't there. This is later on. Uh, sometimes I actually think, what would it be like to have a modern-day uh, nativity scene? I think it would be like a hipster nativity scene. It would be uh, Jesus would be wrapped in organic, fair trade, cotton swaddling clothes, and his father is a carpenter. His name's Joseph, and the carpenter, he maybe would have built a manger out of recycled wood, probably drinking a craft beer, right? And all the sheep and the cows definitely would have been free-range, grass-fed cows around the manger. I think a hipster nativity scene. We could update it. Uh, what you see, though, in this story, what you see in Matthew chapter 2, what you see in every single story about Jesus and his birth and what's going on in this text is that there's always two responses, op- uh, two options of ways we can respond to Christ's coming. There's always going to be this. We still have the same responses today, and they're this. He either appears as a savior to some people or as a stumbling block to others. He's either seen as the foundation of life, of reality, of joy, of hope, or he's just foolishness to us. And all of us take at least one of those two responses pretty far, because from the beginning of his life, what we see is that Jesus revealed at Christmas time in his form as a baby, he evokes these two responses of either joy and worship or fear and rejection. And almost all the stories throughout Jesus' life show him evoking one or the other of those every time. People either respond to Jesus with joy and worship, or they respond with uh, fear or rejection or indifference. I want to contend that these emotional responses depend on why we have these responses is based upon how we view reality, how you define it. In Matthew 2, Jesus is revealed to us, and, and when he's revealed, so is the reality that shapes our hearts. One of those two reactions comes out of us, um, and it definitely came out to the people in this story who saw him in person. And here's why, I think. Matthew 2 tells the story of these wise men, and I think that they're on a spiritual journey. The wise men are on a little, literal journey. They actually travel far across geographic distance, but they're also on a spiritual journey in search of reality. But that's, that's what a spiritual journey is. It's a search for reality. It's a search for what is real. I wonder, aren't, aren't all people on a spiritual journey looking for meaning, looking for significance, looking for joy, looking for hope? Don't we want that? We want this, right? Wisdom and truth for life. We want to have something that we can say, well, if I have this, I can build my life off of it, and it's going to be a good life. And we all know that we have this daily reality we live in that's filled with our daily routines and our daily hopes. And at the same time, so many of us, I think, most people I meet at least, are hoping that there's a reality beyond the reality that you see or that you're currently living in. This is a spiritual journey that that maybe all of us are actually hoping, longing for another reality that exists outside of our reality to come into our reality and reshape it. Some of us have that hope in the form of, of what we think we can achieve so we can go to school and get a good career. And our hope is that, well, my reality doesn't look like what it is now, but if I make enough money or I get enough status or I have 
all these good things, then I can hope that my reality will be even better. But of course, there's plenty of people who have all those things who also hope that they would have a different reality too. It's like we're always longing for something just beyond our grasp, something beyond the walls of this world. And I think that's what we would call a spiritual journey in search of reality. And I think that's what these guys are doing. Because every once in a while, doesn't it seem like every once in a while, something breaks into your life in a way that shows you this other reality? It could just be even a great day at work that somehow, for once, everything went swimmingly. It could be that somehow, for once, there was no fighting in your family, right? Somehow, for once, uh, you really connected with your friends in one of those days that you wish never ended, are these possibly glimmers of this? Like, why isn't it like that all the time? Why can't it always be that way? Because there's a reality beyond this world that isn't fully here. But we're longing for it. We're hoping for it. And what the incarnation of Jesus, Jesus' birth, demonstrates to us is that God seeks to overtly show us there really is another reality out there that can and did actually break into the story of our world. There is another realm out there, but it's absolutely connected to this realm and if we come to know it, we come to see it, we come to understand it, come to live within that, well, it can dramatically change your life. So what we have to see from these stories is that as soon as Jesus is born in Bethlehem, the whole world gets stirred up. All the things around him, all the people who are aware of it get stirred up, right? Jesus hasn't spoken a single word. Jesus hasn't taught one sermon. Jesus hasn't done one single miracle. He is God, and yet he's in the form of a baby. So what he's doing is what babies do. He needs his diaper changed. He throws up. He eats a lot, and he sleeps. Now he's a toddler, so he's probably running around doing what toddlers do. But immediately, all the time, people have some kind of response to him because the claim is he's not just any baby. He's God. The claim is that he's not just any baby, but he's born king, it says. That's what the wise men say. Where is the one born king? Not like the guy who's probably going to grow up and hopefully become a king. This is the guy who was born this way. Born king. So this claim is wild and potentially upsetting because this doesn't seem like our reality. And yet God's claiming that it is. When you see Jesus revealed in these stories, the question for us is, does it lead us to actual joy? Why should it? Could it lead us to worship? Or, like Herod and the other people in Jerusalem, does it lead us to feel threatened? Does it lead us to feel fear? Does it lead us to feel indifference towards him? Let me show you this again from Matthew chapter 2, verse 1 and 2. It said, Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who's been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. This story sets up a tension immediately, that same tension that we have with the spiritual journey, the same tension we feel either uh, joy or fear. We either like Jesus or strongly dislike Jesus. And here's this word that's really interesting, this tiny little word that actually shows up a whole lot in these gospels and something Jesus himself will say when he grows older and he's teaching. It's this word, behold. It says, Jesus was born, and then behold, wise men came from the east. You're like, okay, the word behold is a really strong word, and the original language of the New Testament is Greek, and it's a very strong word that means, hey, pay attention, pay close, close attention. This is worth looking at. 
And I went and looked to see some of the other instances, and I, I won't do all of them because there's so many, it would literally take the rest of our time. But just the very first couple chapters of Matthew, Matthew chapter 1, verse 20, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Matthew 1, 23, behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. They'll call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Matthew 2, 1, we just read, behold, wise men came east from Jer- to Jerusalem. Matthew 2, 9, behold, the star they'd seen uh, guided them to the place where Jesus was. Verse 13, behold, an angel appeared to Joseph in a dream. Verse 19, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. A lot of uh, angels appearing to Joseph in dreams. Behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw, this is Matthew 3, 16, behold, Jesus, when he's an adult, the heavens opened to him, he saw the Spirit of God descending on him like a dove and coming to rest on him. Next verse, behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Do you see all these beholds? It's like, Behold, angels are actually showing up and talking to people. Behold, uh, God allowed this woman who had never had sex to have a baby. Behold, uh, Joseph keeps seeing these angels more and more in dreams. Behold, God opens the heavens, speaks, people heard it, and then the Spirit of God comes down. But in the middle of that, there's this other behold that says, Behold, these guys from East Asia traveled. Like, wait, what? what? We're supposed to pay as much attention to that as when... Miracles happen? Behold, people from the east came to Jerusalem. It says, behold, people who are far off, far off people came very near. That's the story. Behold, pay attention to this. That seems like a strange thing to pay attention to. Except that the reason they come, it says, is to worship. So something significant is going on. And this is the story that we have in Matthew 2 and this tension that we see, this irony, actually. Why is this story here? Why are we supposed to pay so close attention to it as if it was other miracles happening, like Jesus showing up or angels? Why are we supposed to pay attention to it? It's because far-off people have been brought near to Jesus. And, sadly, the people who were near to Jesus turn out to be really far off. And we're supposed to pay attention to this. Here's what I mean. The wise men uh, were likely Persian or maybe Babylonian, and so they may have traveled up to 800 miles, and they did not have Southwest Airlines. And so they had to get on donkeys and camels to come over, and that would have taken upwards of over a year or longer, which is why they probably don't get to Jesus until he's two. And it's very dangerous, very costly to travel in those days. And so they probably would have had a large contingent of people traveling, potentially 800 miles, to come see Jesus. Because they saw a star, and the wise men, their name in Greek actually is the people who started astrology. They're astronomers, essentially. They're the beginning of the science of astronomy. But they believed, and they had these prophecies, that they believed that the stars, there were things out there that pointed to realities beyond what they saw. So they would look to the stars to find leaders in the world. And they were always looking for fulfillments of prophecies. And so that's why they say, we saw his star and we came. Otherwise, that's just ridiculous. They saw a star and they decided to travel to Jerusalem. They seem to have some other information about what this might mean. They are willing to look beyond their reality because of what they've heard. And this is strange, though, because all these people who actually had these prophecies, did you see this? The scribes and the people who Herod, King Herod, calls these people over and says, hey, 
what is this about a savior being born? What is this about this king? Well, Herod is called, his name was Herod the Great. Great builder. He did incredible things uh, in terms of building up the city. He was a very good designer of how cities should be built, and he would hire people to build them, but he was also uh, somewhat insane. He was Herod the Great because he accomplished some great things, but he was maniacal. He was uh, always in fear. He always felt threatened. So he literally killed three of his own sons so they couldn't take the throne from him. He killed one of his wives. He killed a bunch. He would actually dress up in normal people's clothing, you know, like those old stories, kings going out there. But he would go out there to hear what people were saying about them and then send his goon squads to kill the people who talked badly about him. This is This is Herod. We know that uh, Herod, when he says, he tells the wise men, uh, hey, tell me where Jesus is when you find him so I can go worship too. Well, we know he's lying because just a few verses later in verse 16 of chapter 2, it says, then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men who didn't go tell him, he became furious and he sent out and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and the entire region surrounding there who were two years old and younger. Herod hears there might be a king And he immediately decides his course of action is to kill all the children who could potentially fit that description. This matters to this story because we have two groups of people. Two groups of people. The far off who are willing to, at cost to themselves, travel and become near because they believe something special is happening. There's someone else who's only, Jerusalem's five miles away from Bethlehem. Herod could have easily gone there. All these people in Jerusalem who were troubled with Herod, it says in verse 3, they were troubled. But these are the people who are most of all supposed to know the promises of God and supposed to go and want him to be there. And they're the ones who are like, ah. Herod feels threatened and wants to kill Jesus. All the other Jewish people who would know that he was supposed to be coming and would have welcomed him, instead they go, Hmm. They're not that excited. They're not that into it. This is important because what we're seeing in the story then is how polarizing Jesus is, right? So many people in the world have heard about Jesus, and everybody has some kind of reaction to him. Maybe he's a great teacher. Maybe he's God. Maybe he just did some nice miracles. Maybe he's a prophet. Everybody has a thought about who Jesus is. But the question the story is evoking is, will we respond like Herod? Will we respond in hypocrisy uh, where we say, oh, sure, like, I'm interested, sort of, but I really don't care or even feel threatened by Jesus? Are we responding like the people of Jerusalem who have all these promises, who are waiting for God to come, and they believe in him, and yet they just don't really care when he shows up? Or, or like the wise men who go on, they take their spiritual journey in a whole different direction where they actually go on a journey to find him. This is, uh, this is what the story of Christmas is about. And this is why it matters that though there's these near people, people who are near to Jesus, both geographically, only five miles away, but also in a sense spiritually. These are the people who have God's word. These are the people, these are the church people. The Jewish people, they're the same as being the church people. They've heard this message before. They know that God's supposed to come, and then he comes, and they don't go visit as opposed to these other guys who are so far off, but they are willing to come near because they think something significant is going on beyond what they would normally see in their lives. So here's the thing. 
a couple weeks ago, we talked about the story of the shepherds. And Ken preached on that, and he said the shepherds showed up. They were actually at the nativity scene. They met baby Jesus when he was in the manger. And angels came to them and told them about what was going on, and they went and worshiped God. But the thing is, Ken talked about this, the shepherds were really despised people. They were considered very low class. No one liked them. They were always dirty. They were out with these sheep. Sheep were considered dirty animals. And so nobody really liked the shepherds. And yet they're the first people besides Jesus' own family who get to come see him. It's like God gives them a significant place in the story. They're the first witnesses. Some of the second place people that you see then are these wise men. They're the opposite. They're not poor. They're not lowly. They're pretty rich. They're giving really nice gifts. They traveled a really long distance. They probably had to hire people to protect them because traveling was often thieves were on the road and they'd beat people up and steal their stuff. And so these guys are rich. They're wealthy. But this is significant because they're not of the right racial or ethnic class. They're from another country And many of the people near Jesus would have believed, God's for me, but he's not for them. And so this is why we have to pay attention. This is part of the behold. Behold, do you know what God loves to do? All the wrong people he brings in, the wrong people, the people who didn't have the right background, who don't have the right socioeconomic status, the people who aren't of the right race or the right right ethnic background. And he says, oh, no, no. This story is for you. The spiritual journey you're on can lead to me as well, God is saying. It is not for only certain people or certain races or certain classes. It's for all. It's for everyone. The second thing that's amazing is that the wise men actually seem to have real wisdom because they're actually humble and real wisdom is humble. Here's how we know that. They actually have this curiosity, right? They, they have all these prophecies. They're some of the smartest people in the world. They see the star. They know what they think it means. So they have their scientific evidence they've observed. But they also are willing, they're humble enough to go, what if there's things that we see in our world, but they actually point to something beyond our world? And they're willing to go explore. They're willing to go say, we have these promises from God. Let's go see if they're really true. Now, this story probably wouldn't be here. It wouldn't even matter if they showed up to this house and really nothing was there. Who cares? But instead, they're able to follow this star, which I know seems weird, except that we follow sort of things like stars all the time. We just call them satellites that direct our phones. And it's not that odd that we're, we're guided by something we don't see that has a knowledge beyond what we know. And if, God could cre- if we believe in God that he actually created things like stars, then certainly things like that would be under his control. It's much more weird to me that God would show up in person than it is that like, maybe a star showed something. Much more significant that like, God would do all these other miracles than like, maybe a star. But the fact that a star guided people to the actual place seems to go, well, what are you going to do with that? They either saw this or they didn't. It either happened or it didn't, and it seems to be that it happened. The other thing that's weird, though, is that these wise men who are humble enough to receive these things and go looking for it to express curiosity, the Bible actually warns that some of the most difficult, um, people who find it most difficult to see and know God are people like the wise men. Here's what the Bible says uh, in Jeremiah 9. So back in the Old Testament, it says, In Jeremiah 9, verse 23 and 24, Thus says the Lord, Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. 
Let not the rich man boast in his riches, but let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. Or in the New Testament, 1 Corinthians 1 says this, in the, wisdom, in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. For consider your calling, brothers and sisters. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. What are these things saying? I was saying, you know, for wise people, for smart people, most likely we like to boast in our wisdom, how smart we are. We like to fill our lives with the things that we've achieved. Or rich people, if we have wealth and money and status or power of anything, any way, privilege of any kind, we, come, we become very easily content with those things. So we're less likely to look because we think, I don't need help. I can control my own life. Paul said that in 1 Corinthians with these guys who are becoming believers. He says, look at your life, guys. Most of you were pretty low in status, not high status. And so what, what Scripture is saying over and over is that it's actually people like you and I who have the most difficult time knowing God because we already have so much of God's stuff. We already have so many things in this world that make us happy, content, that it's easy to become indifferent. It's easy to say, well, I don't know. Do I really need that? Is my spiritual journey really that dire? I've got some good stuff in my life. I've got some education. I have some privilege. I have some wealth, or I will. The Bible's saying that these people, behold, wow, look at this. Wise people who had wealth and status actually came and looked for God and found him. That's a really different kind of thing. Because what they didn't do was they didn't say, um, like many of us, you know, might hear around us, you know, Christianity is for the bigoted. It's for the closed-minded people. Um, the truly enlightened people turn away from Christianity. But I think what these guys are showing is that it's something different going on. They had an open mind. And as G.K. Chesterton said, merely having an open mind is nothing. The object of having an open mind is to shut it again on something solid. Then an open mind means nothing unless eventually we actually get to the actuality of the search that we're on. This is what Matthew 2 shows us, that many of the things in our life, created things, normal things, are actually pointing us to God. Just like when you and I, maybe we're traveling to Indianapolis and we're on I-65 South, and we see the sign that says Indianapolis is 45 miles away. You don't stop at the sign and you're like, it says Indianapolis. Indianapolis is here. No, you know that it's the sign. It's just pointing you to the reality. It's telling you, well, there's a little, bit, a little ways to go, but you're on the right path. You're on the right direction. You want to actually go into the city. It's the same kind of thing. They looked at the signs around them. Their science, they used their science. They used that God had spoken to them, and they found the reality. The far-off people came near. Even they couldn't be kept from God. So I have a couple friends from college, and this story, uh, the story of their lives always stands out to me. I think about it all the time. One of them, uh, my friend Barry, he, he was in a fraternity, a uh, really sharp guy. We were both biology majors. We were studying to be doctors. Uh, he actually became a doctor. I clearly did not. Um, and he, uh, he had his great girlfriend. He had a bunch of awesome friends. I mean, he had just a really good life. 
But he was one of these people that I met, and he knew the Bible better than almost anyone I'd ever met. Like, he had huge chunks of it memorized since he was a kid. Um, But he would say he didn't really care about God that much, but he knew a lot. And we would be talking about just life. We would be talking about reality, and we'd be talking about our journeys, trying to understand what's life about, what is the world about, where are we going, what is our future for, and we'd be having these discussions, and and he would bring up Bible verses a lot, actually. But he, uh, one day we were talking, and he said, you know, something's different about you and me. I said, what's that? And he said, like, you actually believe this stuff. And you have this different thing about you. Like, there's, a, there's something about you that's different because you believe it. And I know it, but I, I actually don't really believe it. I said, well, what do you, what do you mean? And he said, well, look, I, I actually think I need it. The more that I've come to know myself through college, the more I remember reading all these verses about what the Bible calls sin, and I would say, oh yeah, I'm a sinner, he said. I, and I think I know that what the Bible says is that Jesus came to show us another reality, to take away our sin, to, to take that away so it wasn't standing against us. He's like, I think I need that. He's like, you know me, you know some things that I've done. So yeah, that's true. And he said, I think I need it, but I don't want it. I was like, what, what do you mean? What do you mean you don't want it? And he said, look, I see that I've made a mess of my life in certain ways. But here's the thing. You know, I don't, I don't want to stop sleeping with my girlfriend. I don't want to stop partying with my fraternity brothers. I don't want to stop getting drunk. I don't want to stop pursuing the things that I want. I said, well, you know, just to be clear, like Christianity isn't simply about like get your behaviors in order. And he's like, no, 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 I get that. It's like, I I get that. If I was to come to know God, I think all those other things would actually change. But that's the thing. I just don't want them to change. I see that some things are broken in my life, but I also just don't want it to be different. I had another friend, and she, uh, really sharp, had like a full-ride scholarship, but she also worked, had to put herself through school to some degree, paying for rent and all those things. She came from a really smart family, but her family background was incredibly broken, just a really terrible past in many ways. But college seemed like things were turning around for her. She had a really awesome boyfriend. She was really smart, doing well in school, um, had a full-ride scholarship. But there was a period of time, as we were friends, where she kind of like disappeared for a bit, and she started showing up again, and you could just tell that uh, she had hit rock bottom. And her boyfriend had broken up with her. She was still doing okay in school, but she had been uh, binge drinking and abusing drugs. And, uh, and at one party, she'd been drugged and been sexually assaulted. And so she's coming and she's telling me what's happened in her life. And it's just heartbreaking. And I didn't know what to do. As her friend, I felt like I had nothing. I had nothing to give her other than what if there's hope beyond what the reality you've experienced right now? Because she'd experienced some really good things, but she'd also experienced some really awful things. And that's all I had. All I had to give her was, I believe that there is something beyond this. I think occasionally I've seen it. It's like something happens in our lives. And so we talked, and over the course of months, she would ask questions about what is hope or or how do we find joy after suffering? And we, you know, I'm, I'm not an expert in all those things. I'm just living as a college student myself at the time. I'm like, I'm trying to figure those things out too. And she eventually got to this place where she realized that what the Bible was saying or what God was saying was that he loved her and that no matter what had happened to her, that wasn't going to take that away. And coming from a really broken home where she didn't feel loved, coming from a place where she just experienced a pretty awful year, 
to know that, that she could be loved still was huge for her. To know that someone would care that much. To actually come into the world and to, to give his life for her was deeply moving to her. But it also terrified her. And so one day, she just disappeared again. And for two months, I didn't see her. And I actually was really worried, like, what happened to her? I kept trying to find her. And then suddenly, she shows up one day at this meeting that I was at. She knew I would be there. So she shows up, and it's like her whole face was different. Just total joy. Completely different than how I'd seen her before. And she comes in, and I'm like, wow, where'd you go? What happened? How are you? So many questions. And, and she just said, you know, I tried to go back to all the other things that I looked for to take away the pain in my life and the things that I hoped would give me joy. And I went to go binge drink with my friends, and I literally just couldn't do it anymore. It just felt like nothing. And I just kept thinking about this God who actually might love me or care for me, who actually might have a different reality for us than the one I see right now. And my friends, some of my friends rejected me. They walked away because they thought I was being weird talking about God. It's like, but I can't help it. Something has changed. I actually have hope. She was someone who, unlike, you know, Barry maybe was near. He had the Bible. He'd heard this stuff. He'd gone to church. But he was like, I just don't really want it. And she was far off. She didn't know any of that kind of stuff. Came from a background that seemed like, well, she'd be out. But she wasn't. She was not abandoned in all of that. And friends, this is the story of Christmas. This is what the wise men do. This is what my friend demonstrated when she uh, took, took on this new life. Like the wise men, they took seriously that God revealed himself. And they didn't rely on their own wisdom only, but they realized they'd reached the end of themselves and there was something beyond it. And we had to go seek that out. Behold it. Pay attention to it. There might be something there. And then they worshiped joyfully when God revealed himself to them. And they didn't delay. They didn't say, well, maybe later. But when they realized their spiritual journey mattered to their significance, their meaning, their joy, their hope, they left and they traveled hundreds of miles just to go find out. And then they offered these gifts, right? They gave Jesus gifts, um, not to pay him off, but because they said they were so joyful. They wanted to worship and honor him. As if they were saying, look, we're willing to spend our time, our money, our everything here because this is the story of Christmas as they'd begun to understand it. That we are all on a spiritual journey searching for reality. But the story of Christmas is that Jesus went on a spiritual journey to bring reality to us. That is the story of Christmas. That the realities that you and I are looking for are found in him. This verse we didn't talk about much, verse 6, says that he will be a ruler who will shepherd my people, God says. He's a shepherd king. Shepherd just means someone who's going to care, who actually cares for, the, for those who are in distress or who need something. And a king is someone who actually has the power to do it, who can rule. And this is who Jesus is, one who cares about every aspect of your life, who showed up into the world to prove that, who was able to live through his life and ministry, but then intentionally died. And then when he died, they wrote over him, king of the Jews, mocking him. But it turned out he was more than king of the Jews. He was king of everybody. And he showed that when he resurrected, when he came back from a grave. You're going to pay attention if someone actually comes out of a grave. And all the evidence points to the tomb was empty. Friends, this is how we continue to grow and how we come to know Jesus in the first place. Look, if you're lonely this Christmas, or Christmas is a lonely time, you know when it says he's Emmanuel, 
and Jesus shows up in the Christmas story saying, God shows up to be with you, you might be lonely, and yet there's a God who wants to be with you. If you have a broken family, that whole thing about the Spirit coming down and descending on Jesus, but then later he gives his Spirit to all those who follow him so that they can be his spiritual family, then if you have a broken family, he's offering you a family that is actually a real spiritual family that will last forever and won't be broken. If you're looking for love, or if you're looking for joy, if you're looking for peace, throughout the story, the whole point of Christmas is that he came to bring that reality into this reality so that those things can actually begin to match up. That, friends, is the story of Christmas. Jesus took on our reality so that he could give his to us. And his reality was heaven. His reality was perfect peace, perfect joy, perfect truth, perfect wisdom, perfect understanding. There was nothing wrong where he came from. And then he invites those of us who may feel that we are just so far off from this God, from this reality. And he says, you too can have a place in this story. There is nothing else that can keep you. He's a faithful, powerful king who will shepherd his people. 